Tonight I'd like to talk some about thought. <laughs> predominantly looking at and not so much is said about it. It seems to <laughs> a great part of our day. So I thought I would go into this a bit with you tonight. <coughs> I'd like to start by reading a very short part of a transcript from a talk that a man named Dr. Robert Thurman gave at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts. Um, He was talking about his relationship with the Tibetans and their attitude towards thought. And I found when this was read that this was quite amusing and I wanted to share this with you. He says, so this is one of my favorite things to propose to people who meditate. Westerners are all taught from a very early age a certain form of intensive mental patterning, patterning, but not Asians. I love to ask Tibetans to add up in their heads 9,473 and 6,722. A Tibetan cannot do that. They absolutely will not be able to do that. The most intelligent, great Lama, whatever, they cannot do it. They go, huh? Say it again. They won't do it. We can do it easily, almost any of us. (laughs) Because we can make a picture in our mind of it, visualizing the numbers, putting a line under, under them, and go zip, zip, zop, carry, one, two, three, four. We can visualize such a thing easily. We are taught since childhood to do such things in our heads. But in the Buddhist nations, for whom such meditative disciplines have been so much a part and parcel of their civilization and culture for so long, such as the Tibetans, the norm is not to think much. This always makes me think of a story of Geshe Wungal, where I was once very embarrassed about one old Mongolian gentleman who I thought I had been very impolite to the day before. This day I was very, I was acting very nervous and very embarrassed. I was showing him all sorts of deference and asking him to come over here and sit over there. And he looked at me like I was totally nuts. He had no idea at all what I was doing. Geshe Wongyo said, what are you doing? I said, well, yesterday I took a chair and I did this and I did that and he had to sit down there, the old man, and a very elaborate bunch of things which I had realized had been rude and I was trying to make up for them. And the Geshe said, forget it. He doesn't even remember it. I said, what do you mean? He said, don't you know my Kalmuks, the Mongolians? The one mistake never to make is ever to think that they think anything about anything. 
have to hit them on the head with a hammer to try to get them to think. <laughs> so therefore, they are very relaxed. They have a very relaxed culture, a very friendly culture, don't think about a lot of things. <laughs> On the contrary, their educational system has all sorts of ways of battering them to get them to think because there can be an excess of no thinking, believe it or not. Even if you've learned that the secret way and the high and the great seal of perfection is like a clarified, luminous, and magnificent, marvelous state of non-thought. That's too simple. It's much more than non-thought. So I'd like to explore some of our assumptions about thought and non-thought. We have a habit of thinking there is one way to know ourselves and the world and this is through the reliance on the intellect. We pretty much assume that things are what we think they are. We also believe the feelings that are associated with the thoughts. The thoughts and the feelings are directly linked. So when we have a thought about something a feeling arises, or oftentimes if there's a feeling, a thought arises. And we think that these things are what we think they are. When we go through the activities of the day, sitting, walking, eating, showering, whatever we're doing in the day, we see these habituated patterns of thinking. We see how we create past memories, regrets or sorrows, replaying memories, maybe some of the happy times. We see how we create the future with our fantasies or our worries about something that might happen. And we can even see how we create the present through commenting on what's happening. Oh, now this is happening. Now I'm getting quiet. Or describing what's happening. Or analyzing what we think might be happening. So I'm saying that maybe there's another way to know our world, to know ourselves in our world. And this is through direct experience through awareness, through no thought, where the experience does not include thought. And we can see this when we're breathing, but it doesn't, we don't have to think about breathing. Breathing is happening. We can have a direct experience of those sensations of breathing. We can feel the body we don't have to think about what's happening in the body. There can be direct experience of sensations, tingling, itching, vibrating, pulsing. The labels we give to different sensations may be there, but we don't necessarily need them to have the experience. We hear sounds. And again, we don't need to have the concept 
of what the sound is. It's just a kind of vibration in the ear, in the ear door. In fact, sometimes, most of the time, the concept of what we think we're hearing can actually interfere with that very bare experience of hearing or sounds. When we hear the birds, there's lovely birds around, that label of bird can be extra. You don't need that. Just hearing the, 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 the flittering, the twittering, the sounds of the birds in the ear, letting go of that concept. When you hear the bell, don't need to have the concept of bell to take that in. Just the vibration, just, 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 no words. The same is true with pain. There's something going on there that's quite different than the label pain that we give. Sometimes we get caught with the idea of what we think is happening, that's pain, it's painful. We don't go further, we don't go deep enough to really experience what's there. Experience the sensations, the vibration, the density, the coolness, the heat. And then even letting go of those labels, just seeing right what's there, without using the thoughts, the thinking, the analyzing, the figuring out, just that direct experience. And the emotions, so much happens with the emotions, what we think is happening on the emotional level, and we make these very large stories and dramas about these sensations that are happening in the body. But we can feel this directly, and perhaps something else is going on than what we think. Something else going on than our story about it. On one retreat, I was working with a woman on the first day, and she came in and she said, I'm working with all this fear. My whole body feels like fear. She said, I've been doing a lot of psychotherapy, and my psychotherapist said that I really have a lot of fear to work with. And I said, startled by the question and she said well I don't know and I said well maybe it would be useful to inquire why you're using this label fear maybe you're making a mistake maybe it really isn't fear maybe you really need to look directly to see what's going on so I said for one week for this week while you're here drop the story about what happened in psychotherapy or what you think's going on in your body and just look very directly at the sensation. Stay with it on the sensation level and see what's going on. Well, at first she actually didn't understand what I was talking about. But the next day she came to me and she said, you know, there really isn't much fear. She said I was mistaken. I had a mental construction about some sensations in my heart, in this area of my body. She says, I don't, I don't know why it's there, but 
but now I feel much lighter. I was making more of it than it really was. And I think that this is the problem. What if we're making a mistake about how we're labeling our experiences, how we're describing our experiences? What if, what if we're really making more out of this than what's really there? I think what happens is we, there's a tendency to make up stories and then we then believe that they're true and then we look deeper, we investigate and sometimes we find out that maybe it isn't so true after all. It can be similar to in the old cavemen days, cavemen and women days, when they were painting tigers on the cave walls and and one time a person was painting the tiger and the tiger was so real that it looked at the drawing and it ran out of the cave ah a tiger a tiger so it's like painting tigers on the wall and then getting afraid of them running away maybe we need to look at how we're painting these tigers Because maybe things aren't so bad after all. And of course, maybe things aren't so good. You know, we have to look at it both ways. So we're asking to be watchful, to be very watchful, because the mind can make mistakes. The classic example is the example that Fred gave in the beginning of the retreat, when he gave the example of the man who was sitting in the cave and saw a snake a snake appeared and there was so much fear and so much so much contraction in the body and he sat there and couldn't move and then day daylight came and he opened his eyes and it wasn't a snake at all but it was a rope so it's the classic story of the snake and the rope so it's not that the cause of the fear was the thing itself. It wasn't that it was a rope, but it was thinking that it was a snake. It was the thoughts about what we thought it was rather than its actuality. Of course, there's equally a problem if we think it's a rope and then it bites you. <laughs> I mean, we didn't take the necessary precautions because, again, of the assumption we made. We thought it was a rope, but it was really a snake. So I think that what this really points to is maybe there's a different way of going about it altogether, which is staying very alert and not making any assumptions, not making any jumping to any conclusions until you see what's really there like walking through a forest, the forest of life, just having to stay very alert to what might be there, not forming ideas, not relying on the intellect for conclusions about events, but this direct seeing, awareness without intervention of thought, 
And this kind of awareness without the intervention of thought leads to direct and spontaneous action. And yet even though I'm talking about not getting involved in the thought, not allowing the thought to interfere, I'm not talking about stopping thought. Because I know for myself, many years of practice, I did think that what was being talked about was stopping thought, was having a silent, quiet mind with no thought. And yet, this easily sets up that idea that we're talking about awareness with no thought. But this is really the wrong view. Because we can see from our own experience here on the retreat that we can't stop thought. There's really not a lot we can do about it. The function of the mind is to think. That is its function. And thoughts arise. You can't stop it. Have you been able to stop your thoughts? Has anyone been able to stop their thoughts? If you try to stop, to stop thought, it, it has to come from the idea that we think they're bad or wrong in some way that we shouldn't be thinking, and this immediately sets up the conflict. It immediately sets up a tension. If I think that thoughts interfere with meditation, or they're a distraction in some way, I'm going to try to force the thought out with effort, which then will create more struggle and more constriction and more pain. So if there's that forcing, wanting it to go away, forcing it away, it immediately sets up more struggle. Anytime I want something else to be happening, out of that lack of acceptance of what is happening, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be pain. In fact, any time you are experiencing suffering, experiencing that real difficulty within yourself, you can just ask the question, what am I holding on to? What, what is it that I don't want to be happening right now? What am I struggling with? Because there's something there that's not being looked at, not being dealt with. Thoughts are like waves on the ocean, on the vast ocean. We can't stop these waves. The waves are part of the ocean. Let them be there. Not to be bothered by thought. Let them be. And yet at the same time, being careful not to believe that they are relating the truth of things. There's a difference there. There's a 17th century Zen master in Japan by the name of Banki. And he was enormously successful in conveying Zen in in simple truths. It's simple people. And he liked to talk 
of the unborn Buddha mind. That was his favorite phrase. The unborn Buddha mind, that which is not born, therefore cannot die beyond duality, where all is unified and one. And Banke says, hmm, to try to stop your rising thoughts, holding them back and suppressing them is a bad idea. The original innate Buddha mind is one alone. It's never two. But when you try to stop your rising thoughts, your mind is split between your thoughts and your thoughts of stopping them. It's as if you're chasing after someone who is running away, except you're both the runner and the one pursuing him as well. Let me give you an example of what I mean. You can busy yourself sweeping under a tree with thick autumn foliage, but since the tree's leaves will keep scattering down from above, even if for the moment you manage to get things neatly swept away, more leaves will only come falling later on, won't they? In the same way, even if you stop your original thoughts, the subsequent thoughts involved with stopping of them will never come to an end. So the idea of trying to stop your thoughts is wrong, since that's how it is when you no longer bother about those rising thoughts, not trying either to stop them or not to stop them, why that's the unborn Buddha mind. That's what I've been telling about just now in such detail. Weren't you listening? If you weren't, it's shame. If you try to stop thought with thought, this creates a duality between the one who is doing the stopping and that which is being stopped. We're right back into the duality that we're trying to see through, trying to have insight into. If you try to stop thought with thought, there will never be an end to it. It just creates more and more and more thought. It's like washing away tomato ketchup with tomato ketchup. (laughs) I mean, there's always going to be the stain left with the new (laughs) stain that you're trying to rub away. I mean, there's never going to be any end to it. It just, just doesn't work. Sometimes I think of the thinking mind as a a radio metaphor for myself because I just have this sense that it's like a radio in the mind. It just is always going on. But But I don't have to be disturbed by it. It can just be in the background. It's not me. It's not my voices. In fact, how could it be me? I mean, some of the things that go on are so totally absurd. So it's just, it's just I have this sense of just this background noise. And occasionally there might be something interesting on it that I want to tune into. But most of the time I just sort of let the, let the radio play on. When I use this example in a group, one woman said, 
Yeah, but what I want to do is go down to the radio station and hit the announcer over the head. <laughs> but she says, only to come home and find out that they got a new announcer. <laughs> so even that, it's not going to work. They're going to find a new announcer. <laughs> so really we can look at these thoughts as our friends. The mind as a friend. Because this is, in, thoughts are information giving. They give us information about our world. There's very much that we can understand and know and learn about. Yet they're not the final word. Looking carefully how much we take what the mind says as being the final word. How often we take it as being the final word. I think it's this way, so it must be this way. Thoughts come, she's an angry person. She must be an angry person, because we think so. Or this food is terrible. One of the things I hear a lot, the energy in this place is so depressing. <laughs> I mean, it must be, because that's how we think about it. Or the thought, <laughs> or the thought, I'm getting more and more stuck. Nothing's happening. You know, just how, what we take to be true. So inquire into this. Don't accept this. We set up the conditions here so that we take away the stimulation. It's really an opportunity to look at these sorts of things. And then we apply a technique. We give you a technique. But it's really just a technique. It's not something sacred in itself. There are hundreds of techniques that we could possibly use. And we say, bring the attention to the body, away from the intellect, and expand out the space. Rather than being confined in a narrow, the narrow constriction of thought, which is how we so often live, have a larger sense of space. Which, which coming into the body helps us feel, helps us get a sense of. Because thought is language, language, words. And thought or words or language has the, the nature of fixing, of limiting. They draw a boundary around something. They say, this, not that. That's the nature of words, the nature of language. And in this shaping, in this drawing a body, this uh, drawing a boundary, it excludes possibilities because we're saying, no, it's this, not that. These descriptions then can become a reality 
the only reality we know about and block out the revelation of a more expansive reality. So we say, drop the concepts for now, not to stop the thinking, but put space around the thought. And this means include the body, expand out the awareness, include the physical sensations, the feeling life, the environment, this aspect that's so often neglected in our daily life. Hear the sounds, the taste, including the other sensations. Here we have the conditions that allow for the possibility for thoughts to quiet down, for the, for the thoughts to lose their power. And this means that something else takes over. We allow for that possibility. An awareness of other events to come into view through the direct experience of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. This, the body comes alive. We really feel what else. We can, we can live with something else and this, this narrow little constriction, this mental patterning that just goes on and on. We can become familiar with awareness itself, this space, this awareness. And then there is space for insight to arise. Then there is space for wisdom to arise. Insights into some of our questions, the questions about the meaning of life, who am I? What's this all about? Who is all this experiencing? Who, who is all this experience happening to? Who is being aware? can really start asking these kinds of questions in the stillness, in the quiet. This spiritual inquiry can take place. And then we can challenge our assumptions instead of just believing what our thoughts are saying. Perhaps what we discover or have insight into is how little we do know. What do we really know? We can see our experiences coming and going quite beyond our control. We want to quiet the mind down and we can't. We want pain to go away and it doesn't. We want to feel happy and sometimes we're very depressed or agitated. We want to understand something and the understanding just won't come. We want a blissful experience to stay, and it slips away. Everything changes. Everything slips away. We don't know what's happening or why. It all doesn't make sense anymore. The way that we had it figured out or our constructions just start collapsing, falling apart. You thought you were a loving person and all this anger and judgment arises. You thought maybe it would be impossible to stay in the silence, to be quiet for seven days. And you find out you love the silence, you treasure the silence. You thought you'd be thinking 
or worrying about your children or your partner all the time. And not one thought. You're enjoying yourself. You feel a little guilt. But it doesn't make sense. Everything turns around, flips around, changes its reality. And we drop into don't know. Don't know mind. I remember the first time I met the Zen master Sanfanin in Berkeley in a small room and he was talking about don't know mind and he sat there and he said don't know (laughs) don't know and I'll never forget that it made such an impression really not knowing and this not knowing is very different than ignorance Ignorance encompasses not only the absence of knowledge, not knowing about something, but also the distortion of it. With ignorance, things appear in a way in which they don't exist, like the rope and the snake. With ignorance, there is clinging, grasping, which solidifies the distortion and sets it up as something real, like clinging clinging to the idea that there was a snake. Meditative not knowing this real don't know is free from grasping and distortion. Instead of clinging out of the wisdom that knows it can't know, And with this wisdom, the thoughts start to lose their power. They start to lose that force. Instead of insisting that things exist in a certain way, it accepts their mysteriousness. This not knowing is simple and relaxed. It retains a naive, childlike openness and the sense of wonder of things. If there is an attitude of not knowing, we are free of any fixed conclusions that we have about ourselves, others, and the world. We're free of viewing ourselves in a confined and fixed way, and therefore free of viewing others that way, and we're able to allow others to be who they are. And in, in this freedom, this real freedom of not being fixed or confined, confined, we can begin to discover. We are free to discover, who am I? And this is really the ultimate question. Because when this question is answered, this brings the answer to the question, how can I be free of suffering? How can I be happy and joyous so I may be able to help others feel happy and joyous? Because once one knows who they are, all suffering comes to an end. And that interest to know your true nature, that intensity of the desire itself, 
will take you home. And home isn't somewhere else than where you already are. That's why we keep asking you to be right here with what's happening. Not to discriminate, not to idealize, to set up one event as better than the other, but to be here now. I'd like to read something by Stephen Batchelor from his new book, The Faith to Doubt. He says, a meditative, a meditative attitude is nothing new or alien. It dwells deeply within us all, except now it is a field which increasingly lies fallow and ignored. It is not something that we have to bring from elsewhere and introduce into our lives, it is already present in an embryonic and sporadic way. It may come to us unexpectedly in glimmers and hints. It is vaguely recognized as a distant, barely known possibility which may nag at us like the fragments of the dream that refuse to be recollected, yet refuse to leave us alone. We need to recognize this fragile attitude and then care for it and nurture it as we would a child or a seedling. Meditation does not add anything to life. It recovers what has been lost. It is a growing awareness of what our existence is saying to and asking of us. It is something fundamental that has become obscured by our infatuation with a separate ego and its endless calculations and melodramas. The practice of meditation is to allow this attitude to shine through, to acquaint ourselves both slowly and abruptly with what is both our origin and culmination. Meditation allows us to get acquainted with what's already there. Inquiring into how we make more out of what's there than actually is. How the separate ego is created and its endless melodramas that bring along pain and suffering. Meditation allows us to get acquainted with ourselves, with who we really are. When I was in India, I heard a lovely story that I'd like to share with you a story about a lion cub. There was a, a lioness with her newborn in the forest and a poacher came by and killed the mother and took the skin of this lioness off with him and he left the baby cub there alone. A man came by with his herd of donkeys to drink in the lake that was nearby. And he saw this little lion cub. And so he scooped it up and he took it back with him and the donkeys. So this little cub grew up with the donkeys. It ate with the donkeys. It made friends with the donkeys. And one day when the lion was fairly grown, 
the man took the donkeys and the lion back to the lake. And the lion was eating the grass with the donkeys and braying with the donkeys. (laughs) And another lion saw that this was going on. And it was absolutely shocked to see this lion eating and braying with the other donkeys. After all, donkeys are lion's food. So it chased all the donkeys off it grabs the lion by the neck and the little and the lion little lion says please don't eat me i'm just a donkey <laughs> i want to be with my brothers please don't eat me and the lion says you're not a donkey you're a lion well this lion this little lion had never seen his face he didn't know what this other lion was talking about he thought He was a donkey, and that's all he knew. So the lion took the other lion to the lake so he could see his face, and he told him to look in the lake and look at your face, see the truth. And so the lion looked in the lake, and he saw that he really was a lion, that he looked just like this friend who had brought him to the lake, just like the lion next to him. He was asked to roar like the lion, And as he roared, the lion's roar, he realized his true nature. (laughs) We can't become what we already are. Are we donkeys? (laughs) Or are we the lion? This needs to be seen into, be realized, right now. And this can't be known with the intellect. And yet many think it's the only thing that's available for this discovery. The problem is, the thinking mind will never be satisfied anywhere. The function of the thinking mind is to discriminate. It cuts up the oneness into bits, into parts, where there are no parts, no divisions. The thinking mind cuts up oneness into parts, then picks and chooses what it likes and doesn't like, and attaches itself to its preferences and doesn't let go. The thinking mind cuts up oneness, and wisdom cuts up the mind. Mind is the problem, nothing else. And yet, since the teachings are always full of paradoxes, the mind is also the solution. Because the mind wants to be free. It will keep flowing towards its source until it merges with its true self. Just as all the rivers flow to the ocean and don't come back, Once someone was asked to explain or to describe what they had realized, and when the mind went to look for the answer, it didn't come back with the news. (laughs) 
Mind merges with its with its true self. So many words to describe that which can't be described. There's so many words that are used to describe the undescribable, the source, divine nature, pure awareness, unnameable, the unborn Buddha mind. So many words because this is the area where language can't go, where the mind can't go. Banke says, the main thing is to realize this Buddha mind. Originally, there isn't anything wrong with you, but from just one little slip, you switch your Buddha mind for thoughts. See this, and in the twinkling of an eye, you'll easily go right back to the unborn Buddha mind. Thoughts are just like waves on the ocean, arising from vastness, going back to vastness. The ocean doesn't move, just the waves. Let the thoughts play as waves play on the ocean. Then they won't trouble you. You can't stop the waves of the ocean. Where there are waves, just let them be there. If there weren't waves, you can't surf. (laughs) So enjoy the waves. If you know how to play with the waves, you can enjoy life. 